Well, good evening. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Richard and I have talked about doing this for some time, and it just so happened to be that I was preaching at a church this morning up north of here, and, and so I knew that ahead of time, and we nailed down a date. Richard said, well, come, come on the ninth then and, and share the word with us and share a little bit about the Masters Academy International to uh, the missions team. And so it was a great joy to be able to do that. Thank you for the opportunity. Who's ever heard of the Masters Academy International? That's a number of hands. I'm impressed. That doesn't normally happen in a church this size. If I were to invite you to share everything you know in 30 seconds, could you fill 30 seconds and tell us? A few can, of course. Well, uh, the Masters Academy International, uh, just by brief introduction, we have about 15 training centers, pastoral training centers, much like, not too much different than the expositors here. Uh, around the world. So we teach men how to preach God's word in their own mother tongue. We teach them how to translate the original languages into their languages and so that they can communicate effectively to uh, people in their churches, in their cultures, to reach not just their churches but cultures around them. So I would say on behalf of TMAI and John MacArthur and our, I don't know, 2,000, 2,300 students around the world in our 15 training centers, it is an honor to be here tonight with you to open up God's Word. I'm so glad that we already have heard from the text that we're going to go through tonight. So turn over to Luke 16. If you haven't been there yet, that's where we're going to be. Since we've read the text, I shall not read it again. If you'll look on your notes, and I hope you got a note. I, I, I think I printed about 300 of them. We have more in the back. Okay, so if you need some notes, those are to take home. It's not everything I'm going to say here, but hopefully you'll have some nuggets that you can use and you can uh, pray about those things when you get home tonight. So you can see on your notes that the title of the message is Work Resulting in Eternal Relationships or Friendships, and that's from Luke 16. Richard alluded to, I, I once worked in the corporate world for 20 years, and so much of my doctorate was spent on what does the Bible say about work? And I wished... I wished I would have known back in the days at FedEx where I spent my 20 years, I wished I would have understood Luke 16 and this parable of the unrighteous steward because it would have made a huge difference in my thinking about world missions and outreach. So join with me, if you would, as we look at this parable. I want you to remember or to be thinking about this parable. It's a, it's a parable that shows believers how to incorporate biblical principles into and beyond their jobs in the marketplace. Our parable tonight is really designed to stimulate believers to wisely invest their God-given resources to produce eternal results in the lives of others. We get that right from this parable. Think of this parable as the unrighteous steward, as the parable of the corrupt executive. It was a bad man. The irony in this parable, uh, this tale, this made-up story that Jesus just came up with, whether it was on the fly or whether he planned on it, we don't know, but he made up a story. And it has confused people for ages. There's no need for mix-up any longer. I want you to think of the word irony. Our parable animates irony. Uh, this parable puts legs to irony. This parable gives a voice to irony. This parable, through irony, speaks. Jesus fashioned this story so that his disciples would apply a true-to-life principle in their daily walk with Christ. He presented his disciples with a dilemma. 
he introduced a parable. A made-up story about a man, a, a shrewd manager. Think of him as a swindler. Not a wise man at all. A, a shrewd manager, a swindler about to be terminated, as we read earlier, for squandering the boss's wealth. Irony forces a question in this text. We have to be thinking about this. I'm, I was thinking about it when I was studying it. Lord, why did you use this parable? How is it possible that a, an unrighteous, corrupt, unethical uh, financial practices can teach cutting-edge church growth and strategic disciple-making? Irony. Think about that for a moment. This isn't the kind of church growth seminar we would normally attend about how to get people to come to our church and disciple them and tell them about the Lord. We wouldn't swindle them and we wouldn't cheat them, at least not a biblical church anyway, right? So how is it possible that a deceitful executive and sound great commission strategy are even parable, excuse me, parallel, Sometimes I mix up my P words. That's one of the times I mix up my P words. How is it parallel? Uh, what does light have to do with darkness? Think about it. How can a crooked executive possibly instruct us about sound financial investments and biblical gospel proliferation? Hmm. The parable paradoxically inspires believers to shrewdly, no, to wisely steward their God-given earnings to make eternal friends. I'm stunned, Jesus. Why this parable? Why this one with your disciples? That's who he's sharing the parable with. Jesus presents a rich man with an unrighteous, evil, corrupt, wicked manager administrating his business affairs. Don't miss the irony, it's in your notes. This wicked manager has admirable characteristics for believers to mimic. Underline that, because you need to think about it. This wicked manager has admirable characteristics for believers to mimic. Irony. Think of it this way. Jesus' wise investment strategy, properly executed, guarantees everlasting, no, eternal friendships. This is what he's telling his disciples as they listen in to this parable. Well, the parable provides four, should I say, a four-part pathway to eternal friendships. Uh, I haven't been preaching that long to be good enough to have uh, points that begin with the same four letters. I never thought I could do a sermon with all four letters starting with a P like John MacArthur. But you know what? We have it tonight. It fit. I want the biblical text to drive the outline. Here it drives it. Watch this. First of all, we're faced with a problem, verses 1 through 3. We've read it already. And then we're going to see the plan, verses 4 through 7. And then we're going to see the principle. In other words, Jesus, what do we do with this parable? How do I enact it in my own life? So let's start with the first one, the problem. Again, verses 1 through 3, Jesus presents his disciples you might call it a catch-22 or a paradox. He presents them with this. It's not like any other crisis we don't see in our marketplace today, maybe even at your own job this week, and if not this week, it was last week, 
This is the kind of stuff that's been happening since the dawn of man. He, he, Jesus, tells a story. It's a manufactured story about a man, a manager, who's going to be sacked. He's going to be terminated. He's going to be fired. For what? For squandering his boss's wealth. And shouldn't he be fired for that? Jesus' verbiage indicates that this man wasn't some low-level manager, not even some mid-level manager, some guy who made some foolish, boneheaded mistake once in a while. People with his title held responsibility, or you could say a responsibility of a modern-day COO, a, a chief operating officer. Uh, he was likely responsible for the boss's entire enterprise, from soup to nuts, from people to profit. He had it all. And the one over him we could equate to a chief executive officer. He entrusted him with all of his belongings to do with it what was the right thing to do. Managers like him held legal authority to negotiate acquisitions and divestitures for the boss at the counsel of his own will, he was highly depended upon, and yet he was ripping off his boss. You could say in capitalistic cultures, executives like this guy are paid millions of dollars a year to ensure that companies produce double-digit profits. They impress the marketplace. They impress the shareholders. Every decision they make is for corporate profitability, for sustainable long-term growth, and for protection of their employees and their customers. And because this executive carries Adam and, Eve's, Adam and Eve's DNA, just like the rest of us, you know what? He's, he's depraved. He sees opportunities to advance himself, and he takes it because he does not know the Lord. Like an animal salivating after food, so is this man. He, he sees money, and he slobbers all over himself for one more penny, or in those days, maybe a drachma a shilling, something like that, just to expand his retirement portfolio. He was an important man. In verse 1, I want you to watch verse 1. Jesus tells you, an informant told the rich man, you could think of the rich man again as the chief executive officer, he told him what? The accusation was that the manager had been squandering his possessions. This isn't the first time we see this word squandering in our context here in chapter 16. You'd be fascinated to know that the same word defines the prodigal son back in chapter 15. He used the same word again for a reason. He wants us to understand squandering. You remember the prodigal son, he, he pillaged his own father's inheritance. He took his father's inheritance before his father died, and he, he squandered it off, that whole estate with loose living, found himself feeding pigs. By Jesus' masterful design, the parable of the prodigal precedes Luke 16. Jesus wants you to see that the prodigal son and this manager are both squanderers. They're both untrustworthy. They're both irresponsible. But the case with the corrupt manager, the COO, the chief operating officer in verse 1, Jesus shows us that his frivolity was an ongoing lifestyle. This wasn't a one-time event. He was doing this all over and over again. Jesus wants us to see that the prodigal son and the manager, again, are both squanderers. They're those who uh, do it over and over again. 
He consistently and thoroughly threw his boss's wealth to the wind. And he got away with it. Why wasn't somebody saying something? Well, it's just a parable. It's a made-up story. Like a farmer's pitchfork separates wheat from chaff, this man flings his boss's wealth into the sky. In verse 2, look at verse 2. In verse 2, the rich man likened again to the head of a company, a CEO, for example. He calls the administrator into his office. Look at verse 2. He said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting for your management, for you can no longer be manager. This stern accusation drove the examination into the man's alleged gross mismanagement, misallocation of corporate profits. The inquiry started with the conclusion in mind. He's going to get terminated. He's going to be fired. He's going to let him go. He's going to be without a job, incapable of managing the business that he was. But you know what? Before firing him, the CEO demands an explanation, an accounting. He, explain to me what's going on here. I need to see the books. Tell me about your management practices. I mentioned I worked for FedEx for 20 years, and I, I'm forever grateful for the things that my management team taught me. They taught me how to do simple things like make decisions, wise business leaders. They, they taught me how to overcome obstacles, and they gave us a little tool to help us remember. And I'm not trying to force the tool that FedEx gave me into the text, but I watch what this guy did. He did the same thing I was taught in the corporate world, and that's what we call the fade method. It's in your notes. Uh, how do I overcome obstacles? Well, he does this. He focuses on his problem. He analyzes it, and he develops and executes a plan. Rather than answer the boss's question, you're going to see how this manager uses this fade method for overcoming difficulties. Let's examine his creativity a little bit. Let's, let's try to get into his mind a little bit. You're going to see that, that Jesus' disciples, they're watching this go on, and they're listening to what Jesus is saying, and he's teaching them about discipleship. They won't know that until he finishes it. So his disciples are listening intently to what's happening. He focuses on the problem. He analyzes his limitations. He develops a plan, and he flawlessly executes it with speed and with precision the whole way through. Look at verse 3. The manager said to himself, I don't know if he said this out loud, but he, he says to himself kind of in the quietness of his own mind, he's like, ah, what shall I do? Since my manager is taking the management away from me and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm, I'm too ashamed to beg, what am I going to do? <laughs> You're with the disciples. You're hearing this maybe for the first time. What would you do? You're about to get fired. As a son of light, in verse 8, you would, you who are once dead in your sins and trans, transgressions and subject to God's wrath are saved by grace through faith, you know to confess your sin and to seek forgiveness as a believer out of integrity, you would ask your boss for forgiveness. You would say, I have blown it. I have disrespected you. 
that's not this man. That, that might be something we would do, and you would think, well, that admission would probably get me fired. I'm going to end up in the same place here, but I would challenge you with 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 15. If you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. If, if you go to your parents because you blew it, and you say, look, I blew it, and I, I'm confessing it to you, and I'm so sorry, that's wonderful, but don't be surprised if there's still punishment for the sin. As an unbeliever, as a son of the light, a son of this age, in verse 8, this man analyzes his situation. He's writings on the wall. He's about to be fired. He's not strong enough for manual labor, and he's too egotistical to stand on the street corner and say, we'll work for food. He's not going to beg. So he's acutely aware of the problem. He's analyzed his weakness. He's going to be unemployed. He's going to be homeless, and he's going to be void of a positive Character reference, those are important, aren't they? I ask again, what would you do? Time is of the essence. He needs a plan, and he needs it yesterday. No, he needs it now. Jesus' disciples, as I said, they're listening. We mustn't forget that he's telling this parable to the disciples, and they don't know it yet, but Jesus is preparing them to implement a sound outreach strategy. For now, let's watch the swift the man, as he swiftly develops and executes his shrewd retirement plan, that brings us to our second point, the plan itself, and that's in verses 4 to 7. So in verses 4 to 7, what do we see there? We see a, a shrewd manager rapidly developing his action plan. He knows the writing's on the wall. He knows he's going to be fired. And because he doubtless lives in a house that's provided by the manager, the, the boss, which was a common thing in those days for a man of his stature, his first focus was shelter. You know what? He needs a place to live. He needs a, a warm blanket and a soft bed to sleep in, and so that's what's on his mind as the text instructs us. So he develops a plan that, from his perspective, just might work, a plan that includes people who would, well, maybe voluntarily lay out the red carpet and welcome him into their homes, verse 4. He needs to act quickly. He needs to act fast because, you know what, before his friendship network hears about his squandering prodigal-like son attitude and actions and his reputation, because if his friends find out he's a traitor, a squanderer, untrustworthy, they're not going to want to get him into their house. They're not going to give him the master suite. His love for money illustrates 1 Timothy 6.10. What's that? You would recognize this. The root, money is the root of all sorts of evil. This is what we see in this man's life. It's the root of all sorts of evil. He didn't say that money is evil. His swindling of it is evil. In verse 5, in verse 5, I direct your attention there. Before the customers get wind of the situation, before they hear about what's going on, he invites each one of his master's debtors, his master's customers, in for a round of negotiations. You would think he'd lay it on them hard. He'd, he'd get every penny he could get and then some for his boss. Maybe he could turn his boss's mind around and save his job. You see, it's time to call their notes. He's going after the customers. Now it's... the. The hour, the hour is the time now that they must pay up to settle their debt. He demands, you see it in the text, he demands to know how much they owe his master. By the way, he should know that. 
If he'd already been fired, the debtors would have no idea. Here's why in verse 5, he refers to his boss as my boss. It's a present tense kind of a understanding in the text. He refers to the boss as my boss. He doesn't say my former boss. That's critical that we'd understand that. You'd, you'd think he'd play hardball and demand every penny, but that's not the, cause. That's not the case. Isn't it ironic that he invites them over for a round of substantial discounts. He's going to collect the money for the boss, but he's going to give the boss a significant reduction in the amount that he's owed. It's ironic. I've been a part of many negotiations at FedEx where we extended honorable discounts to Fortune 100, Fortune 500 customers. They earned it. We knew that we could give them a great discount. The margins would drop, but the profit would increase. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's going on. Watch how the executive executes his plan in verses 6 through 7. With all the debtors summoned, Jesus only needs two examples to get his point across. Just two. The first guy. The first guy owes 100 measures of oil. It's probably olive oil. No, it is olive oil. Think of that way. We could put that in perspective. It's probably about, commentators think, it's probably about 875 gallons of oil drawn from 146 olive trees. That is a fortune. Uh, current olive oil prices, uh, I don't know what that might be, but you can do a quick search on the internet, as I did, and I found that $90 a gallon is pretty much reasonable. Some is less, some is more, but with a 50% discount, the rich man will lose roughly $39,000 on his first customer alone. You ought to get fired faster, but the boss doesn't know. All right, so verse 7, you got the second guy that shows up. The second guy owes 100 measures of wheat. He receives a generous 20% discount. 100 measures of wheat is a large fortune, probably as high as 8 to 10 years of a working man's income. Again, the time is squeezing in on the administrator's plan. The expiration date and their coupon is noted not in days, but in seconds. It's kind of like going to buy a pre-owned car, right? Look, you got to buy it now or the deal's off. This is what he's doing. He instructs each customer to write out his note in verse 6. How? How do they write it out? He says, quickly, do it quickly, get it over with. Write out your check, get it done. Why so fast? Because he knows any minute they might find out that he's been fired, that he's no longer the legal individual authorized to strike the deals. Remember, Jesus only mentions two debtors here. There's many more discounts to grant, but in the parable, he just wants us to see two, and so time's a ticking. Had Jesus continued this parable, with all the debtors lined up, all those customers lined up, the amount of money that he defrauded the boss, the rich man, would have totaled a substantial fortune. Irony, why would he do this? It's a classic quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You take care of me, I'll take care of you. The debtors have no idea he's scamming them, bribing them. 
This is scandalous. Let's call it like it is. Because I saved you money, you got to give me a place to sleep. Not just for tonight, but for all my retirement. Before anyone learns of his termination, the, I like to call him a bankster, he grants huge discounts to create a forced reciprocity. Reciprocity is fine. We can do business together and work things out, but I can't force you to do business with me. That's illegal here in the U.S. Well, we're not in the U.S. here in the New Testament, but you get the idea. Verse 4, he saved each debtor a small fortune, quid pro quo. His housing problems are solved. They owe him a place to sleep. This is common back in those days. You do favors for somebody, they owe a favor back. It's part of the world in which they lived, and he took advantage of it. In exchange for these massive discounts, they remained indebted. The swindler resigned, reassigned their obligations to himself, not in money, but in a free bed, free food, room and board. For the rest of his retirement years, most certainly they'll welcome him into their homes with free room and board. See how much money he saved them. Truth be told, if you think about it, it's the rich man, the owner of the company, the CEO, who's the financier of the rascal's retirement plan. He's shrewd. He's making this money work to do what he wants it to do. Shrewd, very shrewd. The corporate executive's strategy is a win-lose solution. He uses the CEO's loss to expand his retirement. He's the perfect example of verse 12. He's unfaithful with somebody else's money. So we've seen the executive's problem his well-developed plan of execution. Now for the completely unexpected irony in this parable. You don't want to miss this. This is really important. The defrauded boss, the guy who was cheated, sings his praises. What? Really? Watch this. The praise. That's our third point. Look at Verse 8, watch how he does this. His master, that's the, that's the big cheese here. He's, his master praised him. He praised the unrighteous man. Why? Because he acted shrewdly. <laughs> Our childhood understanding of what's good and what's evil is assaulted here. My mind runs to Exodus 20. My mind runs to, I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. I am the Lord your God. You shall not covet your neighbor's house or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Jesus, why this parable? Paul's emphatic in 1 Corinthians 15, 10 through 11. He demands that Christians must not associate with a so-called brother who is a swindler. And yet Jesus ironically tells this parable about a swindler. Why include a story about a corrupt executive in the gospel, Lord? Jesus explains his reasons. It's there in the text. The second part of verse 8 you see the word for, F-O-R, for, that's the explanation. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. 
Notice what the master doesn't do. He doesn't praise him for his unrighteousness. He doesn't laud him for his wickedness, his dishonesty, his deceitfulness, his out-and-out robbery. He praised him. He admired him because of what? (laughs) He was shrewd. He was clever. He was astute. As sons of this age, the CEO and the COO are two peas in a pod. Unbelievers, in this case, use their money to attack one another. They are dead in their sins and transgressions, just like we once were. Uh, They need Christ. They need repentance and they need forgiveness. They need to be made alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Do you, uh, do you pray for your crabby boss made in God's image that he or she would come to Christ? Does the work that you perform in your profession speak loudly for the gospel? They're lost without the truth. In verse 8, each one of them are shrewder, it says, cleverer than believers defined as sons of light. Both were held hostage by their love of money. Like admiration in a well-played sports event, they were high-fiving it, excited for one another, for what they'd done, how they made money work. (laughs) They're whooping it up. They're they're in awe over how they make money successful, even if it damages themselves and others in the process. Talked about irony. Here it is. The irony explained. This is shocking. Their shrewdness, Jesus says, is commendable for a believer to emulate because while the unredeemed earned temporary friends with his shrewdness, believers can have eternal friends if they apply Jesus' wise investment strategy. So the corrupt executive focuses on his problem no job, no home. His analysis tells him he's too weak to dig ditches and he's not going to hold up that will work for food sign that we see. He's just too proud for that, too proud to beg. To the praise and the delight of his cheated boss, he flawlessly executes his developed plan with precision and with speed. But to what end? What's the application for us here today? Jesus, what do you want me to do with this? The disciples have to be scratching their head as should we. Well, the application for you is, in the, uh, is the same as it was for the first century disciples, as we saw in verse 1. That brings us to the principle in verses 9 through 13. Jesus says, I say to you, we have to ask the question, who's you? Well, verse 1, the disciples, what does Jesus tell the disciples? To make friends by the means of un, excuse me, by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness. You should know this is an imperative. It's a, it's a command. You must do this. Jesus says you must make friends. How, Jesus? Through the use of unrighteous wealth. The swindler made friends with unrighteous, stolen wealth. Believers are, use, are to use their world's monetary system, their earnings, to subsidize gospel proliferation, outreach in our communities, world missions, 
to lead others to Christ. Why, Jesus? Verse 9, so that because one day when your money fails, you see it in verse 9? Some passages translate the word fail in verse 9 as die or stop breathing or come to an end, you know, when it's all used up. When the friends, a.k.a. the believers made by means of wealth, when that treasure dies, the friends who benefited from their evangelistic efforts will continue living eternally. And when you die, those friends, I love this, Jesus says in verse 9, will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Thank you for your ministry. They will express gratitude because you shrewdly used your wealth to ensure that they hear the gospel, whereas the corrupt executive was a slave to wealth and defrauds anyone for a place to sleep. A believer puts his wealth in the right place. If we were to spend time in Matthew 25 at the sheep and the goat judgment, we would read again how believers are exhorted to take care of believers. Jesus says, you took care of me. But in this text, Luke 16, believers are exhorted to care for unbelievers with their money, to be shrewd with their money. Sons of light treat their own wealth as their slave. Biblically, sons of light know that their wealth isn't theirs. It's a gift from the Lord. It's his. We manage it. You'll see that in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. They they know that everything, their possessions, their food, and the, the dinner table upon which their food rests is all from God. It's his. The sons of light do nothing more than steward God's blessings. Turn over to Deuteronomy 8. I want to, I want to show you something in Deuteronomy 8. We're going to start in verse 10. Follow along as we look at how the Lord did kind of the same kind of promises for Israel. Starting in verse 10 in Deuteronomy 8, Israel's coming out, or about to come out, and he says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. It's a gift to you. Beware, watch out, that you do not forget. Don't forget what? The Lord your God, by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, you say, what happens if we forget? Otherwise, verse 12, when you have eaten and you're satisfied and you have built good houses and you've lived in them, verse 13, when you have herds and flocks and multiply your silver and your gold and they multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud You will not have been beware, as you were warned in verse 11. You will forget that the Lord your God brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness. Jump down to verse 18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he has swore to your fathers. It shall come about if you forget the Lord your God, in verse 19, and go to the other gods and serve them and worship them. And I testify with you today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you will perish. He's warning those who think 
Like Israel, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Everything I own is mine because I worked hard, and yet we need to recognize that everything we have is a gift from the Lord. It's his who gave it to us, and we must steward it appropriately. Back in Luke 16, the son of the light in Luke 16, 12, knows it's not his wealth. He sees his resources as God's possessions. He stewards portions of God's capital to underwrite the cost of the Great Commission. I'm so impressed with how this church gets that. As I sat through the missions meeting just earlier today, I got to learn about all the places that you're going. I, I keep up with your pastor, Richards, as he travels the world and teaches pastors how to preach. He's not keeping this just for foundries. He's not just keeping it for himself. He's taking it serious. He's taken the possessions that God has given him, and you are subsidizing that so he can do this. Many of you might recall a man named Gaius in the book of 3 John. Gaius is known as a fellow worker in the truth. He's not a, pra a, a preacher. He's not a pastor. He's a businessman. And he subsidizes world missionary efforts. I said earlier how I wished I would have understood these things earlier in my corporate career. Gaius exemplifies Luke 16, 11. He was faithful with unrighteous wealth. And the apostle John prayed that he would continue with prosperity so that he could continue to play a part in the financial portion of the Great Commission of the, the Great Commission supply chain. John prayed for his contribution to the Great Commission beyond the marketplace, using unrighteous mammon as a eternal for an eternal cause, a place to be welcomed into eternal dwellings way past his fleeting retirement years. This church has pastors. This church has missionaries. They, they need our help. They need our support and our love and our care. This church doesn't struggle with that. I think of a friend who, uh, at retirement, came upon far more money than he ever dreamed he would have, far more than he ever thought that he would ever need to live on, and so he started a business. And what he does with this business is he manages the business but he doesn't take a penny of the profits. You know what he does? He started a business so he could subsidize outreach, world missions. He was a good CEO, a businessman. He didn't want to just retire and walk away from it. He's still in the game. God gives us obligations to fund with his resources. We know that if we refuse to work, we mustn't eat. We know that if we don't provide for our own families, we're worse than unbelievers. Sons of the light get that, but if you're trying to cut a deal with the Lord about giving, if, if you're conditionally telling the Lord that if he'll just hand over more of his belongings, more of his wealth, and, and then you'll give more, your problem isn't a financial problem. It's a misplaced understanding of, for God so loved the world. God uses this wealth that we create for a purpose in our lives. Does your passion for Christ drive your faithfulness or do your circumstances enslave you maybe even to unfaithfulness, to fear or to doubt or to reticence? What are some creative ways that we can put our paychecks, our savings accounts to work here at church and beyond? A dinner out with your neighbors, cookies, delivery, something nice, flowers, Express love for them. Create a gospel opportunity. Most of us can't underwrite huge grants for a dozen seminary students to go through and get an education. 
Not many of us can shell out thousands of dollars to translate a theological book into a foreign language. But collectively, we can help. As sons of light, daughters of light, we don't serve two masters, wealth or God. We serve God. And because he so loved the world, so must we. The expression of your love for God and your love for the world is to work in a manner worthy of your calling. Be like a Gaius. Practice biblical principles in the marketplace so that you can execute a great commission strategy way beyond your income-producing years. <laughs> what would it have been like if I understood these things all those years in the corporate world? Maybe you're thinking the same way. Well, there's no better way to conclude this whole study and this parable by simply reading Jesus' own final thoughts. We see it there in the text in Luke 16. Turn to Luke 16 if you're not there yet. As we wrap this up, let's wrap it up with his words, and then we'll pray. He concludes, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or he'll love the other, or else he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. We make wealth our slave. We are not our slaves to wealth. Father, we give you thanks for this evening. We give you thanks that we got to sit in with the disciples who heard this parable, this strange parable to teach us how to understand to be shrewd with your belongings that we might subsidize what goes on here at this church, the children's ministry, the outreach projects, the youth ministry, college ministries, uh, women's ministries, men's ministries, all that goes on here. And for the glory of your name, there's no other place on the planet than we would want to be than with you and with your people. Thank you for bringing us here this evening. Use us for the rest of our lives for your eternal glory. Amen.